Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. Hey everybody, I've got a crossover episode for you today with the Pause and Reward podcast with my friend and fellow podcaster and recent podcast guest, Marissa Martino. We sat down to talk about all of the nuanced considerations for reactivity setups. So those are the setups that we designed to help those barky, lungy dogs. And if you like this episode... Please join us for our webinar on the same topic, The World's Not a Stage, Reactivity Setups, on November 29th at 5 p.m. Pacific. The webinar will be recorded, so if you can't attend live, don't worry. Register over at Marissa's website, pauseandreward.com. Hey, everyone. It's Marissa Martino at Pause and Reward Podcast, and I'm here with Sarah Stremming, CogDog Radio. And today we are doing a crossover episode for both our podcasts, talking about I'm so excited for this topic. All the nitty gritty considerations you need to consider for setups when you are training a leash reactivity. And we're talking about this as it relates to dog-dog today, not yeah, necessarily. So, yeah, dog-directed barky lungy behaviors when you're doing behavior modification setups. Mm-hmm. There are so many moving parts that need to be thought about. And I think a lot of the time as professionals, I know this is true for me, I learn the things I need to consider by making mistakes. 100%. (laughs) And so maybe with this podcast, we can help y'all not make those mistakes. Yes. And just kind of know what our bullet lists are so that, and there will be more. I mean, there's no way for us to cover everything, Mm -hmm. but- If you know what our mistakes have been, then you can maybe avoid them. Yeah. And this is, this is, this episode is not for introducing dogs together, right? So if your dog is barking and lungy, like Sarah, Sarah said, it's working with a lot of distance. And so this is not how to do a proper introduction. Um, This is when we are working on a behavior modification plan and we are doing a training setup, all the considerations for that. So Right. And I think that anybody who's familiar with my reactivity protocols knows that this is just one tiny part of Mm -hmm. mine. And I know it's one tiny part of yours. I would consider this kind of the differential reinforcement of alternative behaviors procedural part of the reactivity behavior modification plan, which needs to involve lots of stuff, needs to involve way more than just this that we're talking about right now. And also, this isn't about when you're out and about in the world with your dog and you happen to see a dog, because I think it's really important to clarify for everybody that that's not actually a time for behavior modification. That's a time for management. Mm -hmm. This is specifically for you're working with a professional who's helping you do these setups, or you are a professional who's helping a client do these setups where you're utilizing a helper dog in person to aid in your treatment plan. Yeah. Very well said. So speaking of management, you want to kick off there because we should be pretty fluent in management skills and techniques prior to doing this setup. Yeah. So active management as a primary skill in your toolbox for reactive behaviors is something that I think often gets glossed over. It's like considered not the sexy part, but I'm just here to tell you it is the sexy part (laughs) because if you do it, your dog gets so much better, so much faster if you're really good and fluent in these skills. So, and shout out to um, Amy Cook's class um, on FDSA, which I believe is called reactivity management, but I could be wrong about that. And we'll make sure we get it right in the notes. So skills like asking the dog to come with you and turn around. So do a U-turn. Mm-hmm. Skills like asking the dog to eat off the ground instead of stare at a thing. 
skills like teaching the dog. One of my biggest things that I work with clients is teaching the dog to yield to leash pressure. So if they feel leash pressure from their person, that that's a signal to them to turn towards the person for reinforcement. Mm -hmm. Rather than you getting in this tug of war of you dragging the dog away because he wants to have a reaction. I want the dog to feel that pressure and immediately turn towards the person. And then teaching your client when to utilize those skills rather than let their dog, you know, feel out the situation. Because so often in these setups, we are safe and this is the time to shelf your management. Whereas your management should be in play all the other times that you've got the dog out. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we got to manage the dog into and out of the setup. Right. So if yeah. I've got a setup over here, I might need to have the dog. One of one of the skills that Amy Cook teaches on is cookie magnet. So just following mm -hmm. handful of food and the dogs are actually eating the whole time. And she trains, trains, trains. You you wouldn't think you need to train the dog to eat. I yes, you do, especially mm -hmm. when you're in the face of triggers that are saying, Don't eat, you know, bark lunge. This is all stimulus control. It's all kind of these cue hierarchies. So producing the top hierarchical cue as eat this food that's in your face using that magnet to get the dog from the car to the setup and then out of the setup back to the car all of that stuff yeah and and we get i mean at least i do i'll speak for myself we can get pushy as as trainers or i just said i would speak for myself i can sometimes get pushy <laughs> and i am very 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 cognizant like when i go into a training session i'm like marissa you can be pushy sweetie so like don't push the criteria too too much right and so you might also even need the management tool during the training setup if for some reason you misinterpret or or you get a little pushy or like you close that distance a little bit too much and you're like gosh we got, we have to how can i get out of this situation with as much finesse and with as little of a reaction as possible and then how do i never do that again because that's not helpful during a training setup right a training setup should be really boring and quiet and and, and, and easeful it, yeah, and yet it, life happens, but it, it won't be all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It won't be all the time. And I would argue if you're pushing threshold as much as you need to be, you will go over it sometimes. And so just knowing what your escape route is and knowing your mm -hmm. get out of dodge procedure is what I call it is really, really vital. So actually having the client practice the escape procedure when it's not necessary is another way to get really fluent in um, that particular management skill. And if, you know, and you just, you discuss with the client ahead of time, what the get out of Dodge procedure might be. So a client that I'm working with right now, it is, there's always a car blocking vision. So she can always get the dog behind the car if necessary. Mm -hmm. And practicing it ahead of time, the dog, so the dog sees it and the person is fluent in it and knows how to do it is really the only way to go about this. If you just verbally explain to the owner, to the client, what you want them to do in X instance, I promise that's not going to go well for you. Mm -hmm. And this is just about being good teachers in addition to being good trainers. So like when you're doing this, you're wearing both of those hats. And I would say best to do your teaching upfront in the absence of the trigger, in the absence of anything difficult. Yeah. And this is something embarrassingly that I, I have to admit, and we've talked about this before is that I gloss in over management, like really. Yeah. You're just... not alone, actually. Like there was an informal survey um, on social media, not that long ago and of pet owners, not dog trainers. And the overwhelming response was no, nobody taught me management. The overwhelming response is nobody taught me management. Everybody told me to man it, but nobody taught me those. Yeah, skills. yeah, 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 yeah. And it's interesting, like my more recent clients for reactivity, and a lot of them are virtual. There's something about virtual that makes me feel like I can like take a step back and move like slower. There's something about in person that I'm like, oh, we gotta, we gotta fix this issue. Like, there's such yeah, a rush. You feel like you took an hour of this person's day. You are at a location. You have yes. so much to do the therapies. Yeah, do and, the therapies. And actually, I mean, when I look back on, I don't do a lot of in-person coaching anymore. When I look back on when that was my primary way of making money, I 
look back on so many instances where I was like, wow, you screwed that up because you pushed too hard to do the therapies. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and the therapy thought, seemed sexier, right? Yeah. Like, when you think you owe them that. Yes. Yeah. And honestly, the clients will push you that direction too. Yeah. They won't know that getting really fluent at cookie magnet is as important as it is, unless yeah. you stand up as the professional and say, and say. until you are really fluent in it, we can't pr- proceed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So this has been, um, I have noticed that with my virtual clients, I take a step back and I'm like, and I'm very much like, we're going to practice our management strategies in the house. And then we're going to practice them on the front porch. Then we're going to like, and I'm very, I feel way more, there's more strategy behind it versus just like, you know, say find it in toss cookies. I'm like, wow, like that, it, that's that like it, you would be surprised, but yeah, you do need to teach the people and these dogs, these yeah. skills that may seem very easy and natural for us, but they're not for these people and dogs. And then, and then if you add a yeah. layer of stress or a learning history in their neighborhoods or whatever, it's, uh-huh. it's way too much. So essentially what we're saying is that before you do these setups, mm-hmm. you owe the client a good education in handling their own dog. Mm -hmm. If they will be handling the dog in the setups. I certainly know people who do these setups themselves. They don't, they handle the dog in the setups. Mm -hmm. I think that's fine. I think that's a route. Sure. Especially day training, you know, day training types of processes and things like that. If your client is to be the one handling this dog, you owe the client an education in management of the dog through easy and tricky situations. And that goes all the way as basic as just leash handling and equipment on the dog. Way more important than I think we give it credit for. Mm -hmm. And I do think that I actually feel like I credit my background um, in having learned first to train dogs with a lot of leash corrections. Ray is weighing in. She does not think that that's appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) That I'm really good at handling a leash. And I think that our plus trainers need to be as good Mm -hmm. at handling a leash. Did she say, did she say, did she agree? She said she agrees. (laughs) And you, you know, let's teach our clients that. And when you say I can get pushy as if it's a bad thing, where I'm pushy is equipment on dogs, because if there's a safety issue with what you're with, what the dog is wearing, if the dog is wearing a front connection harness that is too loose, that they can absolutely slip out of if they try, if they really decide to, I'm not putting my helper dog at risk that way. Right. I'm not putting the public at risk that way or the dog itself. So I need well-fitted equipment that the person has been taught to handle well. Which speaking of equipment muzzle too, right? So making sure that we're taking a really detailed, thorough history on the dog. And if the dog has done damage to another dog, how are we making sure that we are protecting the helper dog and, or if we're doing it out in public or wherever we choose to, how are we making sure that everybody is safe, whether that is protected contact or whether that is protected contact is there is a fence or some sort of barrier in in between, or whether that is a muzzle or both, right? I mean, there's many layers on the risk of the situation. And I'm just, I am one of the biggest proponents of the basket muzzle. That's a conversation you and I have had a lot that I use them routinely in client dogs and my own dogs. And actually my client yesterday said to me, cause I, she finally kind of ripped the bandaid off, took the dog in a, on a hike in a muzzle for the first time. And she said these words, I feel like the muzzle has revolutionized my life. Like mm, the wow. muzzle has completely changed her experience of handling this dog. And what a gift. Like, yeah. I think we're afraid of the stigma and our clients might be afraid of the stigma, but it's just time to rewrite the script on muzzles. Like, yeah. let's just you know, paint them cute colors, buy them in cute colors, whatever, (laughs) do whatever you need to do. So yeah, muzzles, gentle leaders, front connection harnesses, martingale collars, like whatever it is that's in your toolbox, make sure that the dog is fluent in wearing it and the person is fluent in handling it. This all has to be done first. Mm -hmm. This is the foundation training. Which is, I just, I think back to like 
so many of my clients where I'm like, dude, like none of that was so fluent enough before we went to a training setup. And we were like, I, we, we were successful to some degree, depending on how, on how we're measuring success. But it's like, I just think about the, the rush to this in my previous years. Oh God. I mean, me too, Marissa. And honestly, I think, I hope that if one, if one trainer hears this and goes, Oh, I've rushed into this and they change their practice based on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, huge. That's such a big change that we can potentially make with this conversation. So making sure that everybody's foundation skills are in place for sure. And that even goes back to just food handling. I'm working with a dog that's got pretty severe IBD and like her high value food is in a squeeze tube that needs to be squeezed through her muzzle. And that's no small task. Like that's Mm -hmm. that in and of itself, the fluency of handling this food to this dog, any dog wearing a muzzle, actually the fluency of handing food to the dog through the muzzle that should be taught to your client before we're in any kind of tricky situation. Yeah. Really important. Love that. Okay. Let's move on to, you want to talk about thresholds and body language and distance and all of that good jazz. (laughs) I think we certainly want to talk about those things. I think that, so this, I'm going to talk about distance first and then I might um, punt it to you for some body language, but for me, you're going to punt it to me. Yeah. I'm going to, isn't that like a sports (laughs) thing? Yeah. Is that a word in sports? Yeah. She's going to punt it to me. I'm like, okay. Is that a correct word in sports? I don't know. The two Lee sport people in the room. Punt. I feel like I've never used that word in a sentence. So <laughs> today's a new day for a lot of reasons. Okay. So <laughs> distance is one of these things that you got to get it right. And it's really tough to get it right without data. So if this is the first time that you've worked with, this setup with this dog, your first job, you're going to just err on the side of very far away, err on the side of big, big distance. There are some exceptions to that rule that maybe I'll circle back to because it's very, it's very complex, but like you're going to err on the side of big distance. Here's what people, here's the mistake people make. They start too close. They realize they started too close and then they back up. And that is not the way we want to do it. We want to start very far, arguably too far, and go closer within the session. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to make note of the fact that I got this close so that the next time I can start where I left off. And I may choose to start a little further back from where I left off, but I'm not going to start that football field away that I I just said another sport word. What is happening? happening. Um, I'm not going to start super far away. Again, I'm going to take good data so that I know how far I can, how far my distances are that I can play with. The little bugaboo on that is that there certainly are dogs for whom very far away is more concerning to them. So there's a sweet spot of you actually knowing the client and taking a detailed history and finding out what is this dog's big, big deal? Is it a dog that's like on the horizon and they're concerned about that? But if you are in a busy park and passing a steady stream of dogs, we're okay. Then big distances are going to be tough for this dog. Yeah. Is it, we're okay until, unless something surprises them, then that element of surprise is going to be the hard part. That's going to be the sticky part, not necessarily what distance is. So I think that we think a lot about distance when we need to think about all of the factors, but starting airing on far away and moving closer is better than going closer and then moving away. If you do find that you screwed up and you're too close, do not move away right in that instant. Take a break, put everybody up, put the dog in the car. And that's actually something we didn't talk about is you need holding areas. You need the dog comfortable chilling in the car and having a bowl of water. If the dog can't do that, then you're going to need to work somewhere that the dog can retreat from the setup can retreat from the weather, the sun, the whatever, and have a rest. So again, that's a foundational skill too. But basically, if you find you're too close, you got to basically scrap it, put the dogs away, give a good break, nice long 10, 15 minute, drink some water, chew a frozen Kong, whatever, and then come back at a smarter distance. Rather than what I see is, oh, oops, okay, well, let's just back up and then keep going 10 feet further. All you did was reinforce that reactive out- outburst. That's all you did. 
when you do that. So it's throw in the towel, stop, put everybody up, come back out of the smarter distance because you will screw it up and it's fine. Yeah. And you also don't want to be almost like cleaning up the dog's nervous system in a way, right? Like your, your dog's already triggered. And then now like they've had that reaction, you move back and now you're working from with a dog that is pretty stimulated and, and aroused by their environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I love that you gave the caveat for the dogs that are worried about like, Whoa, you know, 120 feet away. What is that thing in the distance? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There's so much to consider. I mean, yeah. So we're just we just are getting started with this list i know that way okay let's talk about body just language go on and on <laughs> yeah punting it to you punting it to me <laughs> strumming passes the ball to martino seriously martino does not catch it because that martino happened fumbles, all the time <laughs> martino fumbles that was like my worst nightmare in gym class i'd be like don't throw it to me <laughs> anyway okay so under at an over threshold. This is how I talk about it with my clients. This is actually how Sarah and I became friends. I wound up reaching out to you and I was like, Hey, can we talk about thresholds? And right. right? And we recorded, it was episode number six for pause and reward. And I'm like, there's a, there's like a thing in the middle here, right? Like there's an at threshold thing. Um, and we, t- we, we talked about that in, in the episode. And so I, I break them up into three categories for my clients specifically, because I, I feel like it's, it, it's, it's really helpful for them to understand who their dog is under at an over threshold. Like they obviously know who their dog is over threshold. That's why they called me. They're missing when their dog is under threshold and then they're pushing or like not, well, they're probably also missing when their dog is at threshold, which is why the dog tips over and goes over threshold. Right. And so I'm really trying to train their eye to notice who their dog is under and at and over threshold. And so we identify specific body parts, particularly to that individual dog and how they are changing depending on the situation. So a lot of them send me video. We talk about that. We slow it down. I show them and they're like, Oh yes, I'm, I'm not, interrupting soon enough, or I went too far, or they, they start to really see what that looks like so that they can be faster in their management strategies, especially if they have to take their dogs for walks in the neighborhood or whatnot. So we, we want them to be really fluent in recognizing and then knowing what to do when their dog is starting to like move up to that at threshold point. And whether we're going to allow the dog to look or whether we're like, oh, you know, the dog's, the dog is watching the dog for a second too longer. We're going to um, interrupt using a, a management strategy, right? So there's a finesse that the client needs to have when we are working in this training setup. And these are those skills that need to happen prior to the training setup, or else this is going to be sort of a hot mess. And the reason that I wanted you to talk about that first is because I spend almost no time on this with my clients. Really? Yes. And I know that that's completely unusual. So let me talk about why for a second. I think body language is really important to understand for the trainer and not necessarily for the client. I think, sure, we should teach them stuff along the way. But for me, I hand them black and white threshold tests that they can use on the dog to just ask the dog, are you okay with this or not? Mm. And the reason I do that is because it's easier than finessing easier than finessing when I'm working with them and everybody's safe and we have time to, I will point out body language things. Certainly in the videos that we take of the dog, I might point out body language things. And if they learn it as a bonus, I'm thrilled but I don't depend on them learning it. So I give the threshold checks that I basically use. The first and biggest one is just, can you eat? And I think, can you eat from the ground versus can you eat from my hand are two different questions. Eating from the ground for the vast majority of dogs, easier. I also tend to change the way that they're feeding from their hand. Most people are feeding between two fingers and I ask them to feed from a cupped hand that is kind of delivered under the dog's mouth, like feeding a horse. That's easier for them to do than to pick it from your fingers. So we really have like three. You could also then ask them to eat from your pinched fingers, but 
And then when they're doing that, it's, and how hard is their mouth, right? So I'm, I'm asking them to observe, will the dog eat and how is the dog eating? A lot of people are probably are screaming right now at me saying, well, a lot of dogs will eat way over threshold. And you're completely right. A lot of them will. And that's why I'm a big fan of low to medium value food in these situations. I never want a high stakes reinforcer for the dog. So if this is a very hungry dog, the instruction is regular kibble and feed them breakfast. I don't want them overly hungry. And I certainly have dogs that will eat under pretty much any condition. And those are then, then the importance is the nuance of, and how did they eat? How did they take it? Did they shark it off the ground and then go staring back at the environment? Or did they eat it off the ground and sniff a second to make sure they got it all? Yeah. Did they snatch it out of my hand and then look back at the environment? Or did they eat it from my hand, swallow it, and then look back at me and ask for more? So Honestly, I prefer dogs that will eat under most conditions. They're more trainable because you, your currency doesn't lose value, but not all of them, you know, not all of them will. And then it's very easy to tell that we're approaching threshold or over. And so I spend more time on these questions. And the first one is, can you eat? And the, uh, and then the next are cues. Can you sit, lie down, nose target, spin, give a paw? And I make sure that they've got a repertoire of cues before we ever hit the field to work with these dogs. And I find that I find that there's a lot of value in that for a lot of different reasons. But if the dog knows you have hot dogs and if you're in your kitchen and you are slicing up those hot dogs and they're offering sit and they're offering paw, like these are dogs who understand this contingency really, really well. And so if you feed them that hot dog, they eat it. You're, you're going, okay, great. We're eating in this environment. That's check step one. And then you ask for a sit and they look around and they lick their lips and then they sit. I'm teaching people that that means you're approaching threshold hmm. because you're getting that high latency on that behavior. And this is a fluent behavior. If you don't have any fluent behaviors trained, you can't ask these questions. So I, to me, that's a foundational skill. We're always going to start there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I do instead. And certainly along the, like, I just told you some body language stuff, looked away, licked lips. So I'm teaching them body language through. Yeah. But yeah, but you're, you're not doing it in, in the way that I'm like, this is under and at and over threat. Like it's, it's, it's different. I'm like, you're doing it through the lens of these questions. And like, it's sort of a, a byproduct, whereas mine is like, yeah. When I'm teaching yeah. it, it's like the forefront thing. And then we talk about, you know, when you see this, you're going to do this, right? It's right. similar, but it's just what we're focusing on. But I appreciate the questions that you're asking. And um, so I, I have a question. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to make a statement. I would imagine that in your ideal world, right? So let's say we have a client that is walking their dog in the neighborhood. I already know how you feel about that. So we can, we can... <laughs> we'll skip over that part. We could like frown, frown at that. Right. Oh, so, so, th yep. so they're walking in their neighborhood and they have to though, like, let's say it's like, listen, yeah, like they, they absolutely have to, but we are reframing it that that's not exercise, that that is not mental stimulation. I mean, it could be mental stimulation with the training, depending on how it's going borderline. Um, are you then saying if you are walking down the street and the dog starts like ears perked forward, body weight, like, are you having that? Are you pointing that out to them to say, right then do your management strategy? Yes. Or, or are you engaging with the dog the entire time to not even allow the dog to then move out and get at the end of the leash and start to scan the environment? Does that make yeah, sense? Really, yeah. Really good question. So, um, both, both are true right. okay. because- Sometimes, because sometimes the dog will start to approach threshold, even if you've tried to keep them there. Mm -hmm. If you are walking in a trigger laden space, like the neighborhood, mm -hmm. which I would argue that is pretty much only necessary if you do not have a place for the dog to relieve itself. Otherwise it is not necessary. I would rather provide enriching activities inside the home and inside the backyard than have you walk the dog in a minefield. If you live in an apartment, you got to get that dog in an elevator, get it down seven floors, get and walk it to some grass. 
yeah, we need to have this conversation, but those are the rare occasions that we need to have this conversation. For the most part, I am going to have people stop walking their dogs in their suburban neighborhoods. But here's what I find, Marissa, they already know the dog's approaching a reaction when the dog looks like that because they've been punished. The person's been punished by those reactions enough times that they see those behaviors. They just don't know what to do about it. So that's where your fluency and true, true. Your fluency and management comes in. And I would also coach them that when you're walking around in your minefield, you're in constant management. There is yep. no free time. You there are time. managing the dog. There is mm -hmm. no free time, which is why it's not great for them. It's not exercise. It's not decompressing at all. Mm -hmm. It's the opposite. They probably need to decompress from it. Yeah. I've had plenty of clients who have set up a litter box in their apartment for their 45 pound dog to get rid of this problem in their lives. Yeah. That's above and beyond. And I, I don't think we're trying to talk about like all the ways that we need to deal with reactive dogs in their situations. But for me, I don't need to teach them that the dog's stiffening and getting taller and bringing its ears up means I need to step in with my management. I just need to teach them the management. And then sure, there are yeah, cases where we're walking together and I'll say, do you see that? Get in there with the management. And they'll mm -hmm. go, oh, okay. I wasn't sure if I needed to wait a little longer or, you know, yeah. yeah. And so, yes, I am teaching them body language, but like, I'm not spent, I'm not doing this like long process of looking at video and whatever. Cause I do find that people are already recognizing more than we're giving them credit for. They just don't know what to do about it. So giving them the skills first is where I like to focus. Yeah. Because I think that most often, I mean, you are right. Like clients know, right. And that's why they are calling us. I think that they're slower, right. To respond. And so I'm, they I, have high really, I'm, I'm really excited. They're not fluent. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And so it's funny because I'm like, Oh, do they not see it? And so I'm actually making an assumption, but whether they see it or not, and it could be a combination of both. Right. Or it could be like, I don't know what to do versus I've done it before. It didn't work. It could be all these things. So I love that we're talking about like, like this will now be a new question for me is like, do you see that? That's what I, and that's um, what I tend to do instead of stepping in and saying, and now I say, do you see this? And they'll say, yes. Mm -hmm. And I'll say, that's your cue. That's your, cue. Yeah, that's your cue to with step your in. cookie magnet or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Love it. So learn, learn something new every day. <laughs> don't we all, don't we all? So I think that these threshold conversations and also, you know, what is threshold like threshold? There are so many different behavioral thresholds. The threshold for Iggy and eating food is different from the threshold for Felix and biting a tug. Right. So you have to kind of know the individual and take the individual into account. And you are recognizing their dog and their situation as an individual. They love it. So that's just good coaching to say, you know, I notice that mm -hmm. Luna really loves food. Do you notice that? And they're like, oh yeah, Luna like lives for food. And I'm like, great. So knowing that, we don't want to bring hot dogs and cheese. We want to bring her regular kibble because we don't want her to feel like this is a life and death, death scenario for her. And if you want to bring her favorite like peanut butter Kong for her to have when we're done with the session, wouldn't that be a really good reward for her after? And versus, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it is Felix and his dream come true after the session would be to bite the obnoxious latex squeaky pig thing. So if somebody recognized that and said, why don't you bring that? And he can have it when we're done and he can lay on this blanket and have it in the shade while when we take a break, you know, all of that is good training, but it's also just good client rapport building. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that. Maybe we dive into um, a really big environmental thing, I think to consider, which is that this needs to be an enriched environment. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. Number one, I think, it means if you are lucky enough to have a beautiful, clean training facility, you're going to need to get a little messy in that training facility <laughs> to make it more enriching for dogs. And if you are working out and about in the world, you want to look around and think like, 
can I enrich this environment further? Do I need to enrich this environment further? What are your thoughts on that? Like, where do you typically do these setups? A lot of these setups are outside. So they're either, um, I've not done them in a large, we don't really have a large enough training space that I have connections with. And so with, um, when I'm thinking about doing it outside, if it's like, when I'm thinking about enrichment, you know, are there just organic shrubs Mm -hmm. or trees, or, um, I might bring like PVC pipes with additional scents or snuffle mats, even, um, like uh, I might bring, uh, boxes for nose work. Like I might have stuff for the dog further. Yeah. But you're looking for a natural area as natural as possible. Mm -hmm. Here's a tricky thing that we run into, I think, is that most of us don't have access to some big pristine facility, Mm -hmm. but I know that our friend Lisa loves to use office parks, especially on like a Sunday where nobody is there because nobody walks their dog there. Like you're not going to run into, it's better than a park because you're not going to run into, you know, Joe dog owner and his whatever, like on his skateboard, on his cell phone with those yeah, like yeah. Running, running through your reactivity setup. Um, true, <laughs> exactly. true story, true story. So now you need to enrich that environment. Now yeah. you need to help that space out a little bit, especially I think that we don't talk enough about surfaces for dogs and whether they're comfortable or not for the dog to walk on. Mm-hmm. Concrete tends not, it's not going to be slick, which is one of my big things for everybody to be aware of is slick surfaces and how uncomfortable dogs are on them. But Concrete's not really going to be slick, but like if dog has arthritis, it's going to hurt after, after a while, a lot of our reactive cases, those dogs are in some kind of pain. A lot of them are reactive because they're in pain. So then we're going to march them around on concrete. So there's that. And then yeah, shrubbery, trees, grass. These are, these are good additions to your environment. So if you're looking at a parking lot that you're going to use, but there's like a strip of grass with trees, that's where I'm going to keep my reactive dog hanging out isn't the triple grass mm-hmm. with trees, not, not so yeah. much on the concrete. And then I love all the things that you said, as far as adding enrichment to the environment, snuffle mat, nose work stuff, other scents. I do a thing in a lot of my setups that I provide, I call it an enrichment zone, which then I shorten to easy, which then sounds like easy, which is really important, which is really easy then for your client to remember mm-hmm. that this is the easy place. So I'm letting my, the reactive dog retreat back to the easy, um, after good choices, basically. So, and I'll lay out a blanket if we're not on grass and I'll put a snuffle mat and a bowl of water. If y'all are not providing water in these setups, yes. the first thing to change, both dogs need access to water, the water time, the entire time. So if you're working in a and- space, put out multiple bowls. And shade too, right? Yeah. Right. I mean, we you talked about breaks earlier, but you know, but shade. Being really yeah, if you're in the mindful. sun, you need you need shade. But if you're not providing water, because that's a relatively new thing for me to make sure I'm always providing not just water during the breaks. I always provide a water during the breaks. Have water in the setup right there yeah. for the dog to access all the time. So have your, you know, I'll have my snuffle mat and I'll have other types of like um. I'll often have like a cardboard box that's got kibble in it. And we've kind of closed it and the dog might tear into the box. Like it kind of depends on the dog's skill level with a lot of these things, but I'm providing an enrichment area. And what a great thing to provide both dogs. Yes. Some of my setups are literally just both dogs in their enrichment zone. That's literally all we're doing. That's yeah, yeah. That's it. It's literally all we're doing. I was going to say, so when Sarah and I were drafting this outline, we were thinking about it as it relates to like, you know, I've got my dog and Sarah has her dog and we're working. Right. But I do want to say that some of the things that I do for my clients, um, is we meet together at a dog park in Colorado. I was just going to say in New Jersey, in Colorado, (laughs) there are, um, that's where I'm from. There are a lot of dog parks that have a ton of open space around them. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to the dog park. Right. We are just like 
most people are not walking their dogs in these areas. They're like parking their car and going straight to the dog park. And so I very much can anticipate where they're going. And so we, we, we set up our enrichment area or easy or EA um, really far away so that we can almost utilize those dogs as our setup. However, again, we need to have our exit strategy. It isn't the most it is higher risk, I would say, than like what Sarah and I are talking about mm-hmm. in terms of like you have one designated dog and and you have the dog that you're working with, um, and both handlers are brought up to speed with this whole thing, and we'll get to that. But it is an option that I sometimes use, um, especially if we don't nece- if we don't have access to a helper dog or, or something like that. So something to consider, but it's definitely something that you need to like scout out, mm-hmm. understand I mean, like what scout those any location that you're using, right? Yeah. Any location. What you're describing for me is another is like it's another tier of what I do. So dog park TV. Dog park TV. If people are familiar with my Bark Lunch 101 protocol, dog park TV is part of it. And when I originally taught it, I didn't have an easy involved in dog park TV. And now I do for every single client. So now dogs are not just near like I was counting on the enriching environment, trees, grass, whatever. And now I just, I just take the guesswork out and we just produce an easy for the dog to work through while the dog park is happening. I tend not to use dog parks for DRA types of setups, but you could, it's just, it is less, Tell me why. It's less controlled. Why? Cause it's like, yeah, it's just, it's just, I don't, risk, right? I find it not that beneficial. I find dog park TV very beneficial and I don't find DRA with the dog park as beneficial. I might graduate them to that. Like that might be okay, now we're going to try a less predictable situation, but I wouldn't do it first. I would always do predictable setups first. Got it. Okay. So I think that, you know, the enrichment piece, that's just basically make sure this is not a barren environment where the other dog is the most interesting thing there. And the Mm -hmm. dogs aren't, dogs don't have any like natural doggy stuff to be doing when they're there. And I think utilizing enrichment for your breaks and I'm using enrichment as such a way too broad of a term, but essentially like providing them stuff that dogs like in their breaks is also a good thing to do. So I'll often have people bring a frozen Kong or topple or something like that for the dog to enjoy in the car where the, while they're taking a break and cooling down or whatever like that as well. Mm-hmm. So okay. do we want to talk about, um, well, we need to talk about timing for sure. Yeah. So this is something I feel like I am needing more short. Like it's like Marissa, air on the fire. Get a timer. Yep. And get out of there. Yep. So this is one of those things that dog trainers want to do organically. They want to in anything that we're training. We want to just stop when it feels like time to stop. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage everybody, no matter what it is that you're training, to stop when the timer goes off instead, no matter what is going on. And how do you know how long though? I think I know how long because I have, it's the same with distance. I've tried it. I've guessed to begin. And then I've adjusted based on the data, based on the data. So I have dogs that are working on, like I've got a dog that's working on some like checking out from training. And I know that if the handler trains past two minutes, we're now approaching the problem. The problem will happen after that. So the timer's for two minutes. And when I start to see that going really well, we might try for two and a half. In these setups, two and a half minutes is not super reason- reasonable because of everything that has to happen. Like that's yeah. short. I have like, my general rule is that nothing should go on longer than 10 minutes ever. Mm. I was going to say 10 to 15. I generally 15, do feel, longer 15 feels long though. Mm-hmm. We were just doing play groups at like really small dyad play groups at um, a shelter. Mm-hmm. And they were telling me that they do the play groups for like an hour. And oh I was God. like, and so Lisa and I were talking about like, gosh, like, what would you say? Like, what could be like a, a good number? And we were like 10 to 15. And we both felt like cringy at 15. Like it's too long. And also 15 is too long. Observe dogs. Like if I observe my dogs playing, mm-hmm. like last night, Rhea was playing with Finnick. Finnick is the youngest border collie. And Rhea's pretty deprived right now because I broke my foot and can't do what she really needs. Mm-hmm. So this is her in a state of deprivation and they played for four minutes and took a break. Yeah. That's in a state of deprivation. 
And then they went back and played for like another four. But generally speaking, they take, if they're, if they're safe and they're in their natural, normal space and they're not deprived, they're going to play for a couple of minutes and then they're going to take a break and then they might go back in. So if you're going as long as 10 minutes, you got to make sure breaks are happening. You can get in and you can ask them to take breaks. But I think that generally speaking, like we feel like we got to get a lot done. Yes. Yeah. And I'm thinking about minutes, a setup I did a few months ago. Yeah. 10 minutes tends to be the max. And also for your client, for the human, 10 minutes, it's a long time. Yeah. It's a lot. And then a lot to be managed. Yeah. And take those breaks and let the dogs regroups, regroup. And you can do several sets of what you're doing with those breaks in between and the break. And then you discuss and like, I mean, it's just use your smartwatch or whatever and set a timer and just wrap it up. Yeah, You'll be amazed at how much more you get done actually by training for less time. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. All right. We want to talk about choosing dogs wisely and big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal. And I, I was thinking about this topic. I mean, obviously we, we have to, we have to take this into consideration, but, um, one of my clients virtually, she was, um, recruiting people through, I think it was through next door. Mm. And I was like, that's so smart. And also like really risky, right? Because it's like, who, who are these people? Who are these dogs? Right. And she was really smart about it and knew the questions to ask and whatnot. And, um, yeah, so it was, this is, there's a lot of things that go into making this, this choice, especially when we want to think about like, um, what, what's going to be the easier, well, I don't know. You might, you might disagree with this, but um, I love it when we disagree because, or I love it when we do things differently because that just brings so much more nuance to the conversation that I think all the listeners can so benefit from. So I hope that we do this differently. And we probably, I think, I think we probably do. So, so I think if I'm going to be doing a setup and there's a dog that had, like, I'm thinking about Sully, he had a really hard time with large males that were black. And so we wouldn't have started there. Um, We might have started with smaller dogs or females or, um, like I would have, you know, or, or chosen a, spe- a specific activity level, right? Like maybe it's just a four-year-old female, um, that's 40 pounds versus, you know, uh, a one-year-old male that's like bouncing around, right? Like I, I want to be really particular about what, it, what triggers the dog in general. And then I want to, I want to work up to that type of silhouette or that, mm-hmm. that type of engagement of the dog. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm choosing, choosing dogs that are going to be easier to be successful. Do you do? I think that's wise. I think starting, I think that's just splitting. That's starting where it's going to be easiest for everybody is Mm -hmm. always um, a good idea. I think that we're going to lay out kind of ideal things. And then honestly, then everybody has to work with what is at their fingertips. Yeah. And And I'm like, and that also doesn't work sometimes. Is that if Mm -hmm. I did this like if I if all of my virtual clients who work on reactivity were in-person clients who work on reactivity I would be doing things differently than I'm doing them now because I have one client who I see in person to work on reactivity she's a combo virtual in-person client Mm -hmm. which is rare for me but um and I use my own dogs And I wouldn't do that twice a day, four days a week. Like I wouldn't, my dogs wouldn't be subjected to that. Yes. Yes. And when I say subjected, I am taking the best care of them that I can through all of this, but it's not something they need to experience a lot of, I don't think. So when I did it, when I saw a lot of in-person clients, I used other client dogs who were relatively neutral a lot of the time. So I would, you know, I'd have some reactivity setups on the day and I would, sometimes I'd have the client come with their dog and handle their dog. And sometimes I'd go pick them up and I'd handle the dog for them. And like, I had kind of an arsenal of nice, easy dogs that I could Mm -hmm. work with, but I want to, what I really, the point I really want to make, because everybody kind of needs to do the best they can here. And this is why I don't think these setups 
are a good idea. Like it, they're not practical to be the majority of your program. If it's the majority of your reactivity program to do these setups, that will not be practical for you because you will run out of dogs. There will not be enough of them, or you won't even have them to begin with. Yeah. And it's hard for the client to do it on their own, it's right? Next like, to impossible I mean, for the client to do it It's impossible so and it you don't be, want to ruin the training. Yeah. It cannot be the majority of your program, but this is where I want to say, cause everybody says, well, I just don't have a nice dog. And I just want to call BS on that because there is a, actually a wide variety of dogs that can be used for this work. If you are smart about it. So you don't need a dog that is going to stand there with a blank face while it's being screamed at because you're not going to let it be screamed at. Yeah. You don't need a dog that is going to be completely neutral to being yelled at because you're not going to let it be yelled at. Mm -hmm. You're not going to let that happen. That's not part of this plan. It's that's not good for anybody. So you don't actually need that. You need a dog who basically, I think you need a dog that's trained. That's what mm -hmm. you need. The other week um, when I was working with this in-person client, I have three dogs that I use. I have used Iggy. I've used Iggy a lot. Iggy is 13 years old. She owes me nothing. It is important to me that these setups are literally just her eating. That's literally all she does is eat food mm -hmm. out of the grass. She's perfect with these dogs because for some reason they all know that she's a queen and just are like, yes, ma'am, I will go back to my enrichment zone as well. And I suppose that we are both enrichment zoning right now. <laughs> and I can also use Felix who Felix would not be okay with a dog screaming at him. So I don't let it happen. And we had a moment where the dog was like, I think I'm going to scream at him. And I literally put him on a downstay, crossed the field, took the dog from my client and handled the situation. And without that level of training, using Felix would not be okay. Yeah. Wow. So to me, they need to be trained. That's what they need to do. Felix is ideal because he's the best trained of my dogs by far. He's not ideal because he's comfortable or happy about other dogs. He's pretty selective actually about other dogs. He's ideal because he trusts training and he is highly trained and he can do that downstay as I cross the 50 feet or whatever. Um, and then Rhea's the toughest because Rhea barks. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't label Rhea reactive, but I would. She comes out of the car barking. She's just joy. She's happy to be out of the car. And then a reactive yeah. dog. <laughs> is going to go, oh, sweet, we're barking. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah. But I build up to it for sure. So, and then I also want to encourage it. So basically it doesn't take a unicorn. Don't think you can't do it because you don't have a unicorn. It takes training is what it takes. And then if I had a lot of these in-person clients, I would get them all together and I'd, they'd use each other. That's what we would do. Yeah. I love that idea. It's brilliant. And, you know, on some level, it's also brilliant because you're building community. Yep. Because mo yeah, I mean, they need each other. Yeah. They need to really isolating to have a reactive dog. Yeah. Yeah. And Sully was reactive and I also used him for setups. Um, we would have like an additional person available to coach the mm -hmm. client. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, he wasn't, he was by far, I mean, he was mildly reactive, but I mean, again, we, we didn't push him to the point where he would need to do that nor the other dog. And when I say use reactive dogs in these setups with reactive dogs, don't use neutral. Here's what that takes. Everybody's skill being exactly where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. And it could take an assistant because you might need to coach one client and your assistant mm -hmm. is the other. It probably needs a lot of individual training on each client before we bring this situation together so that we're all really fluent on what needs to happen here. And then everybody's going to be really careful to keep everybody under threshold if both dogs are reactive versus yeah. like I talked about, you might let, you might let a big reaction happen if you know that dog's not going to react back. And I'm here saying you shouldn't, it's best not to let that happen mm -hmm. at all. So I love using your clients with your other clients. I think it's one of the smartest ways to do this, set, these setups. Okay. So with all of that to say, Right. And I mean, we didn't, we didn't talk about, there's so many other considerations that we could really dive into, but we want to move on to um, not only setting up the environment and understanding the dog, but now we've got a human being at the other end yeah. of the leash and we've got multiple human beings, depending on how we're setting this up. If you have an assistant, like you just mentioned, 
Um, and we need communication systems, right? We need, like, this is not the time to be troubleshooting or talking about things because, uh, you know, people are focused on, they should be focused on handling their dog, like uh, getting access to the tools that you have taught them, right? So it's just, it's not the best time to be saying a lot of words at them when we're doing this training setup. And I teach this a lot with um, shelters when, we're doing dog to dog introductions or we're um, facilitating a play group. We have one word, like one word sentences that we use and that we all agree upon before we wind up doing the setups or the introductions so that I'm not like, okay, now I want you to drop the leash because of so-and-so and did it like, it's too much information mm -hmm. for our clients. And so I know that you have a communication system that you have with your clients. So I, I'd love for you to share that. So the thing that you need to be able to communicate at a distance, especially if you're handling a dog, if you're not the go-between of two different people, if you are and there's three people or four, everybody still needs this. You need one signal that can be given across whatever the distance is. That means we got to stop now. So mm -hmm. to me, that's, that's the big one is that, so I teach them to just wave their hand above their head and then that means we're we're all going to stop. So that means everybody stay where you are. The reactive dog that we're working with is going back to their safety zone, their car, their whatever, their break place. And then everybody else is dispersing to their break place as well. And then we're going to reconvene. That's the biggest thing to me that needs to be communicated because I'm keeping yeah. the actual setups so short that we don't need to communicate during. Yeah. I'm explaining it. I, I'm explaining, I want you to go for, and I use visual indicators of, I want you to go from A to B and back to A. You're just going A to B. If I add a C, fine, then we might go to C, but we are, it's A to B is the whole situation. That's all I want you to do. And I've taught you how to do it with no triggers where I've been standing there right there next to you, coaching you, you know how to do it. If you see that your dog is approaching threshold or you are running out of food or your dog stops eating, you wave at me. If it needs to stop, you tell me it needs to stop. And you do that with the one signal that I've given you that means stop. Mm. So for me, I only need that one signal because I give all the information up front and I never go so long that other conversations need to be had. And at first I might err on the side of, we're doing five minutes of this. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to put your dog away with their Kong. We're going to talk about it. And then we're going to, then we might try 10 or then we might do another five or I might tweak something after that. And this is how I do all of my training. Smart training is not switch around on the fly. It's try something for a short period of time, stop, put the dog away, evaluate how it went down, decide what you're going to do different in your next rep, if anything, and then do it again. Yeah. So to me, if everybody knows what they're supposed to do when, then there doesn't need to be a lot of communication in the meantime. I have had a client, I had a client buy walkie talkies and use a walkie talkie system with her helper. And that was necessary because they were using a visual barrier that the helper was supposed to come out from behind to work on the sudden appearance of a person. So there wasn't a way to communicate other than like yell at the person, which that's not good. Mm -hmm. Text is not good because then you're looking at your phone and not at your dog. So she, <laughs> she full on bought walkie talkies and used them to communicate with her helper. Um, so that can certainly be, but we're talking about, you know, when we're talking about these setups with using another dog. I just use my timer. We don't go very long. We re reconvene after the timer goes off. And then we have one big clear abort mission signal that we all will use if necessary. Yeah. I have used where you've got um, headphones on and you're on the phone. So I was working with a rescue mm -hmm. and we were trying to get this puppy to do, like we were doing some, it was more about, the goal was to introduce the dogs together um, and, and because it wasn't an unsafe situation. It was the first time that the dog that this puppy needed, it was the first time that we were introducing this puppy to another dog and we were noticing that it was harder for him. Um, and so we did a lot of parallel walking and a, a variety of different formats and we had headphones on. And we were both on the phone speaking to one another, but we were two trainers handling the dog. Exactly. Like, what do you see now? What do you think? Like, um, and we were troubleshooting on the fly, but again, that was two handlers or sorry, two trainers. That wasn't mm -hmm. two clients. Right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but that, that was really helpful, especially because I could just be talking to her and then narrating like, Hey, we're going to take a break now because of A, B, and C, we're going to go behind the car and, um, I'll let you know when we're ready to pop back out again. Like that, like we, we just had this constant communication. Yeah. And that's not something that I've done, but I think certainly if you're working with maybe an assistant, like you said, so somebody mm-hmm. who is also a trainer, having earbuds and a phone call going to kind of discuss what the assistant's doing. To me, again, if you keep the sessions really short, it's not necessary. Yeah, you probably don't need it. You're right. This was longer because yeah. we we were working we in a different we environment. Felt like we you were working, mm-hmm. you know, that wasn't a reactivity setup. That was a shelter situation with is that did I read that wrong? No, it was it was in a home. Um, dog was being fostered. Oh, okay. We had a helper okay. dog. Yeah. Okay. And so, right, there are ways and- to talk during, if necessary, without it being yelling across mm-hmm. <laughs> and things like that. So I think that to me, the way that I like to go about it is all the communication up front and then a stop signal. Yeah, I'm wondering, like, um, now that I'm thinking back on that setup, I'm just like, oh, wow, I wonder if there were more, like, I think we could have cleaned it up. Like, it it went really well, and it was really successful Mm -hmm. um, because the dogs engaged and played. Like, I mean, it was was really, really great. It was was basically like a slow leash introduction versus Mm -hmm. like a reactivity setup, like like what you're saying. But I do wonder like if it was cleaned up, if you will, like a little bit more strategic the way that you're talking about, if it would have gone better, different, say, you know, yeah. yeah. Hindsight 2020. Who knows? I think that um also getting really clear with our clients that their primary job here and that we want to support them in that job is advocating for themselves in this situation and their dog in the situation. So we can get a lot of that kind of white coat syndrome, like we can get a lot of the dog trainers, the authority figure and people yield to them when they maybe shouldn't like that happens. So Mm -hmm. safeguard yourself from that happening by saying, I want you to call this off if you have any feelings of it not going well. And then those short sessions in which we communicate after while the dog's having a break, that's a space for you to say, is this feeling okay to you? Is this feeling good to you? How, how did that go? I mean, this is, I never want to assume that I know how that went for this person. I want to ask. Yeah. Because there's been times where I've asked clients, how did that go for you? And I thought it went really well and it was really poor for them. And so yeah, they're like, being I was able, that was hard. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, wow, you hid that really well. And <laughs> no idea. And I thought this was a really great setup. And so, um, yeah, being able to ask your client is really critical because they're the ones implementing this plan. And we want to make sure that they are fully bought in and feel comfortable around this. Absolutely. And I think Re- regardless of what you're training, regardless of what you're doing. And again, setups are such a to me, small part of work with reactivity behaviors that if they are uncomfortable to this person or to this dog, you can forgo them. You can focus harder on other things. I find that when they're done well, though, that people are feel very empowered by them. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's sometimes that's the benefit of them. It's just that the person feels empowered. The person experiences their dog making some good choices and they maybe have never seen that before. And it's important then to keep them in your program for that reason sometimes. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's such a great, you taught me to ask the question, like, what does resolved mean? Mm -hmm. And it's funny because when I ask folks what their training goals are and the intake form, I'm actually going to change the question to being what is resolved because it's, it's interesting when I ask the question on the training form, I get one answer. And then when I ask them in the session, like what would resolve look like, what would it feel like? What what would it give you access to? Like, tell me about it in this situation and this situation, a lot of people just want to be able to walk down the street, like walk down the street, cross the street and be okay. Like having those management strategies is resolved for some people and people. Yeah. And so then like, do we need to do the setups? I mean, 
in my opinion, I feel like the setups are this wonderful opportunity to provide that dog a situation where they can make different choices, but they're also making different choices on in management mode as well, right? Like they might have, you might've needed to intervene and use one of your management strategies, but then your dog chooses to stay with you or disengage from the other dog or watch it walk by or whatever, right? Like, so they are making different choices when we're in management, management mode too. Um, so that could be enough if the setups aren't accessible to you or you don't want to take the risk or whatever. Well, and even asking the question, what are we going to get from the setups? What do I expect mm-hmm. to gain in the program from doing these setups? People don't bother to ask that question, Marissa, mm-hmm. because we just go, well, we do setups. That's how we train, right? That's what we've always done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ask what do I expect to get out of this if it's that I expect the dog I expect to train the dog to walk past another dog so that, that can happen for this person in real life as a stepping stone to it happening in real life then every session you're thinking about that goal now you're going to mm-hmm. tailor your session smarter because you're thinking about that goal you know I think back to the first setups I ever did and I'm just like well the goal is just for them to react less the goal, the goal is for them to stop doing that, to look at a dog and not react. That's the goal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That might be the goal for the session, but what is the bigger picture that you're trying? What are you actually trying to get from these setups? For me, it's usually that the dog can be walking down the street in their suburban neighborhood. And if you see another person coming with their dog, for a lot of people, it's perfectly acceptable to be able to cross the street. So cross the street and pass or you're mm-hmm. on a trail. Can I just arc past a person without having to pull my dog way off the trail and manage, manage, manage while this person passes? Well, then I'm going to tailor my sessions to get us closer and closer to practicing that end goal behavior. And then I'm going to have further training plans that get us there in real life because the setups are fake and the dogs know they're fake very quickly. And when I say fake, I mean, it's, it's a contrived scenario that nothing looks quite like real life. So knowing what you want it to do for you in real life will help you to tailor the session better. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think we ask that question. And if we do ask the client, what does resolved look like for you? And resolved is they'd be fine with the dog following a cookie magnet past another dog parking around it on a trail. Then wow tailor your questions to get them yeah Mm -hmm. if it is in my case a lot of the time if it is i the dog needs to do agility trials which means that it needs to wait to go into the ring and it's going to be within five feet of another dog um sometimes a lot closer and then it needs to run its agility run and let me put its leash on without running out of the ring to attack another dog like i if that's what we're talking about then that's what we're talking about and i'm tailoring everything towards that goal so that everything's an approximation of that end goal rather than just this thing that we think we're supposed to do. Yeah. Doing it for the sake of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, lots of considerations. So many. I mean, we could probably talk for like five hours, but yeah, stop for today, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I hope this is helpful for folks who are, who are conducting them or are thinking about doing them or yeah, lots to learn. Um, What I would say in terms of your learning journey, um, take video, take video, take video and watch, watch, watch so that you don't make the mistakes over and over again. For sure. Take yeah. video, use timers mm-hmm. and take some data. So you actually know about your distances. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.